ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, I could not be more excited this week. I literally have three of the very best in the ETF business set to join me. It's simply a loaded podcast. And first up will be ETF Trends' Tom Lydon, who's just so good at looking through the lens of ETFs when talking financial markets and what advisors are doing in their portfolios. And that's exactly what we're going to do this week. We're going to look at the record ETF flows, which I would say without question have been aided by the financial markets in the first half of the year. And then we'll discuss some of the potential risks to those flows in the back half of the year. Uh, we'll also talk China ETFs, which have been in the news recently. And if we have a moment, I may even sneak in a question on uh, which ETFs now own Robinhood. So look forward to that conversation. I'll then be joined by Bruce Bond, who many of you may know, he was a pioneer in smart beta ETFs back in the day at PowerShares. He's now co-founder and CEO of Innovator ETFs, who themselves pioneered the so-called defined outcome ETFs. Uh, these offer exposure to various segments of the market where you have a cap to the upside, but then you also have downside protection. You have a uh, buffer to help offset declines. And this has been one of the fastest growing ETF categories, now over $7.5 billion, of which Innovator is about $5 billion of that. In just three years, by the way, pretty remarkable. So we'll get into all of the details on how those ETFs work and some considerations when using them in a portfolio. And then to close this week, you're in for a real treat I'll be joined by Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And some of you may have seen this. I decided to source questions from Twitter for this conversation. And I've got to say, all of you out on Twitter, you came through big time. Just a fantastic response, some great questions. So be sure to stick around for that. Eric never disappoints. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci or you can go to etfprime.com. Let's chat with Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. 
Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Great to be back, Nate. Thanks. Okay, so let's start with these record ETF flows this year, and then we'll certainly get into the markets. So I was looking, as of the end of last week, inflows had already topped the more than $500 billion that went into ETFs all of last year, which, of course, itself was a record. Now, <laughs> look, you've been involved with ETFs for, uh, what, a couple of decades now? Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what's your impression when you see this? Like, like give us some perspective here. Well, it's crazy, Nate. Uh, at the end of the financial crisis, we had $600 billion in ETFs. And there were a lot of years going back to 1993 when the first U.S. ETF came out where it was very, very slow going. Now to think uh, compared to 2009, we're going to get more than $600 billion just in one year. It, it really is mind boggling. And again, we'll talk financial markets in just a moment. But if we put that aside, what do you think have been some of the key drivers th this year? Why are we seeing this acceleration in, in inflows? Well, uh, a couple of things. First, the, the difference compared to last year, most of the money went into fixed income. And that is not the case this year. We're only seeing about a quarter of the amount of money that went into fixed income last year come in this year. It's all about stocks. It's all about growth. And, uh, you know, when you look at the markets, markets hitting new highs here in the U.S., you look about earning surprises, uh, you know, so, so far this quarter, 88% of stocks reporting are beating expectations. Uh, first quarter earnings, 85% beat expectations. So things are continue to be really, really strong in equity markets. Uh, some of the markets outside the U.S. are unloved, but they're also great opportunities as well. Well, let's talk more about the, the markets, because to your point, clearly inflows this year are being driven by what we're seeing primarily out of stocks. I would say U.S. equities in particular, right? We have the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Dow, all right around record highs. And what, what I thought would be interesting is let's look to the back half of the year and discuss what could positively impact the markets and then what could negatively impact the markets, which again, could ultimately impact ETF flows. And first on the positive side, you, you were mentioning uh, earnings, but you, you know, as you look at the markets right now, what gives you optimism? What could keep the CTF party going? Well, it, it, earnings, number one, it, it's all about earnings. And if we continue to get low expectations from investors and uh, low guidance from the companies themselves, and we beat those expectations, that gives this incredible headwind for people to continue to buy. So that's very important. Also, the Fed has been the investor's best friend for many, many years. That backstop doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. So that's important. They are, have shown that they're willing to step in if the markets or the economy sneeze in any way. So that's helpful. Um, also, I would say investors tend to be more disciplined. They don't get shaken at all. If there tends to be a correction, uh, they don't run away. In fact, they buy on the dips. So we've been continuing to see more people taking advantage of any corrections that have come. So 
that's all, that's all been very, very good. And obviously, ETFs have been a been big beneficiary of that, Nate. What about large cap growth or, you know, these mega cap tech companies? I actually tweeted out something yesterday. It was from S&P Dow Jones Indices, which showed that S&P 500 growth versus S&P 500 value. S&P 500 growth is close to all-time highs. And, of course, the story earlier this year was a rotation back into value stocks. Is value making a big comeback? But but you sit here and look now, that doesn't necessarily look like it's the case. And, of course, if you look at a lot of the most popular ETFs, they are market cap weighted. They're heavier on the FANG stocks. Um, is that something that could keep this party going as well, just if investors continue to gravitate towards these, these mega cap tech companies and, and growth overall? Well, you're an advisor, Nate. You know... Uh over the last 10 years, if you had a high correlation in the S&P 500, your clients were very, very happy. So there's not a lot of motivation to do anything different at this point. I, I think the big thing, and hopefully we'll touch on it, is are you positioned to participate in the future FANG stocks? Because right now, with 25% of the market cap of the S&P 500 being in seven or eight companies, and those same seven or eight companies continue to do well, why would you do anything different? Um, at the same time, we have this huge home country bias where not only individual investors have more allocated, way more allocated to U.S. stocks than they do stocks overseas, but advisors are having to do the same thing because anytime they venture outside the U.S., they've kind of been punished, even though they're doing it for the right reasons to diversify, and there's better value outside the U.S. right now, but it's hard to bet against the FANG stocks and the S&P. So, Tom, we hit on some potential positives for the markets as, as we head towards the remainder of the year. Let's look to the other side. I mean, what could derail things? What do you think could put a crimp in ETF flows in, in the broader markets? Well, the Delta variant concern is real. Um, you know, not only ratcheting up healthcare concerns, but the emotional concerns that come with it. And uh, I'm not smart enough to know the, the potential upside or the potential downside there, but it's on everybody's radar. The big question is, are advisors or investors going to tweak their portfolio because of more concern on Delta variant? You know, time will tell. I think the other thing is inflation. The number one concern for advisors today, and we're surveying them every week, is uh, inflation and what to do about it. They, even though the Fed is saying, it's going to go away. It's no, not a concern at this point. It's a real concern to advisors, and it's a real concern to investors. The other thing is China. Um, this saber-rattling that we're seeing among the two largest economies isn't good. However, this has been going on for a long period of time, and the good thing is they both want growth, and both economies tend to be intertwined. The big question is, is someone's saber going to be a little bit sharper than somebody else's, you know, we'll tend to see. And then finally, you've touched on valuations. Uh, valuations um, aren't cheap right now in the U.S., but it's not 1999 either. And there are some great valuations in certain areas of the market. But if you've been a value investor, it hasn't worked well for your portfolio. Yeah, and I think the key there is, again, it goes back to corporate earnings, right? Can the earnings that we're seeing generated from companies meet the expectations that investors have on the valuation side? That, that's the key question. The other point that I'll make here, you mentioned the, the Delta variant. This is a challenge for uh, investors and advisors because let's say that the Delta variant 
does become much worse than expected or is worse than expected. The wild card here is then what does the Fed do? And, and, and what does the government do? Do we see, you know, boatloads of more stimulus to counteract that? And so as an investor, how do you position that, right, where you have this risk out on the horizon? But history has shown us that the Fed and, and the government will come you know, riding into the rescue on that. And so I think that's a tough one to, to handicap. And I guess on that note, I mean, Tom, as you think about some of the positives you just covered, some of the negatives, what do you think should be front of mind for advisors right now? You, you mentioned you know, being careful with the home country bias. We talked about how the S&P 500 has certainly been a good place to be if we look back over the, the past 10 years or so. But what about moving forward? What do you think should be some key considerations? Well, when you look at the other side of the balance sheet and the, on the income side, the, the second biggest concern for advisors today is income and and what would happen with inflation, with rising interest rates. Nate, you and I have have talked about that. You're managing money. Uh, What are some of the things that you're doing for clients? Are you concerned about junk bonds? Are you concerned about rising rates? Uh, There's a lot of risk out there, right? It's a great question because I I, I think I said this to you when you were on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. To me, Generating income in a portfolio and really just the overall bond allocation, that's the single biggest challenge for investors right now, because how much risk do you take? And I I guess I'll offer is I look at the landscape right now. uh, Let's just take longer duration treasuries. The risk reward just doesn't seem there to me. It doesn't seem to make sense to go way long out on the curve to scoop up a little bit of extra yield when you could just be destroyed if rates rise and if, if we do get inflation. If I look at uh, the junk bond space, I mean, you have credit spreads at all-time lows, and, and what is the risk-reward proposition there? Do you do you take on the risk of junk bonds? And I get, you know, defaults are, are low and, and all that, but um, you're taking risk in, in junk bonds to scoop up a little bit of additional yield. I don't know that you want to do that in a bond portfolio. On the other hand, if you don't do those sorts of things, take on some credit risk, take on some duration risk, guess what? You're going to have negative real yields in your in your fixed income portfolio, which is not what a, uh, a you know a retiree who's looking to live, live off that income is looking for. So it's a tough one. I don't think there is a great answer right now. I think the position that we're in because of, of where rates are at, it's it's a Rubik's cube. It is. It's it's really tough. What we're seeing most advisors do is take a barbell approach. They're they're looking at the Barclays Ag and basically deconstructing it. Uh, they're maintaining short duration. They're maintaining cash, but they're also looking for alternative income opportunities. And and there's some areas to consider. Uh, not just dividend-oriented, uh, preferreds. We've talked about this before. But there's some options overlay ETFs out there like JEPI, J-E-P-I, from uh, J.P. Morgan or Nationwide's Newsy that are kicking off 7 8% yields with an options overlay where you can actually shift that over to the equity side and also get some decent income. Those are some things to think about. I also think, um, even though the numbers don't show it as far as flows, uh, adding some commodity strategies at this point in time probably is a good idea. Uh, we've seen net redemptions to the tune of about $8 billion out of GLD, which has made the numbers um, not as clear. When, we, In fact, we've seen a lot of money going into commodity-oriented ETFs, uh, ETFs like the Invesco Optimum Yield ETF, PDBC, 
or I like the direction commodity ETF com COM, where they actually have an internal trend following mechanism and have been away from natural gas and gold because it's been underperforming where others have been outperforming. Well, I think the simple takeaway there is that you may have to look to some alternative asset classes. And the way that I would frame this is, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the S&P 500, look, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen moving forward. But I think it would be fair to say it would be good to set your expectations that the returns we've seen over the past 10 years are probably not the returns we're going to see over the next 10 years. And so in addition to this challenge of finding yield, it's where are you going to get returns, period. And I think some of the strategies that you're speaking to, you know, whether it be options-based strategies or otherwise or looking to alternatives, those may have to be places that investors at least kick the tires on to, to see if they can generate some, some additional return. Um, Tom, w- one thing I want to ask you, again, you mentioned the, uh, the home country bias uh, earlier and, and perhaps advisors. One thing they should be doing is looking overseas a bit. And on the risk side of the ledger, you mentioned the, uh, the, the geopolitical risk, China in particular. And I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, over the past what couple of weeks, several China ETFs have been front and center. I would say KWeb in particular, the CSI China Internet ETF. Uh, that's one of the most popular China ETFs. And it's down about 25 percent over the past month. If you look at most of the other popular China ETFs, they're down anywhere between 10 and 15 percent. I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on China exposure in a portfolio right now? Uh, last week, I talked with Brenda, Brendan Ahern over at Crane Shares, and he had a great perspective. I mean, the bottom line is, uh, if you go back in history, especially the last 30 years, there's a lot of this uh, tension between the U.S. and China because of the competition. And, and he put up a chart over the last 30 years, and there were probably 20 different periods of time, Nate, where there appeared to be tension, when in fact, behind the scenes, everything ended up working itself out. I mean, there is no way in the world that China is going to separate itself from the capital markets in the U.S. or vice versa. And, and they're pretty confident about that. And investors are confident in that. Even though there was a pretty healthy correction, KWeb actually saw some really good flows in the last couple of weeks. Talk about buying the dip. Uh, there was a lot of money that was going into KWeb. And uh, I think there are a lot of smart people that are seeing that opportunity. And I'll just add something here that I, I think is important for investors and advisors, which is just paying attention to the exposure in your emerging market ETF. So even if you own something like VWO, the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF, or IMG, iShares, you have exposure to China. And uh, I, I'm with you, Tom, in terms of long term, but I think what we've seen here recently is just a good reminder to understand that. And there, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention there are ETFs out there that look to sidestep you know, some of these geopolitical issues. Uh, freedom comes to mind, right? Sure. FRDM. Or even if you look at something like XSOE, the Wisdom Tree X State-Owned Enterprises ETF, where at least they, they try to uh, exclude some of these you know, Chinese state-owned companies. That may be something to consider if you do have longer term concerns about how this will play out. It is. And I think you're hitting on something really important here, Nate. Uh, China is succumbing to pressure 
to be a little bit more open about their financials. You know, there, used, there was a point in time 10 years ago when we were concerned not only about China, but other emerging market countries regarding their accounting, their transparency, their technology. Around the world, everybody's improved. One final shout out, I, I would say, to the areas in the emerging markets that are really growing. And you look at an at a ETF like EMQQ, where it's only invested in uh, you know, internet or e-commerce related companies. Yes, it's got a lot of China, but also has some real good companies in, in other emerging market countries as well. Those are areas that are going to continue to grow in the future. And if you don't have allocation, that's something to consider. I, I think finally, Nate, this is it. You and I enjoy talking about the ETF business. We've celebrated it. We love talking about the hot dots. But it's not um, about what you're buying. It's also, most importantly, about how you buy it. Your allocation, especially for those of us that are advisors, are really key and critical. Well said. Uh, Tom, only about a minute left. I have to ask you about this Robinhood IPO, because I, I always think it's fun just trying to figure out which ETFs might own these higher profile uh, IPOs. And no surprise, who jumped in? ARK Invest, right? They were all over this one. They now own Hood and ARKK, ARKW, uh, ARKF. Any uh, quick hot take here on ARK or, or Robinhood itself? Um, so I was on with Kathy Wood last Friday. Um, they are excited about the possibilities, but it's not what's going to happen in the next three months. It's it's the next three to five years. And, you know, Kathy's been really consistent about trying to find opportunities that aren't a flash in the pan. These are innovative, disruptive technology companies that are going to be with us for an extended period of time. And, Nate, when you and I first started investing you know, looking at uh, discount brokerage platforms like Fidelity and Schwab, they were really innovative at the time. But, you know, my son shows me his Robinhood account and what he's buying and selling and getting meme stocks and that type of thing. We've got this next generation that's learning, and they're learning because there are opportunities to participate in better platforms like Robinhood. Yeah, I, I, we, we know that there's been some things behind the scenes that are somewhat questionable. I think all that stuff will work itself out, paying for order flow and that type of thing. But long term, it's a new innovative technology and the next generation loves it. No, it's a good point. I feel the same way about Coinbase, right? And uh, it's a double-edged sword because I, I agree with you. You're getting a lot of younger investors interested in investing. They're, they're you know, taking off the training wheels. We all started somewhere. Uh, I, I know that it took me some some learning experience to you know get where I'm at today, and so these platforms are providing it. I think you know on the other hand, is this facilitating sort of this gambling mindset and behavioral issues? I guess that's probably a discussion for another time. But uh, this will be interesting because Arc not only they they uh, jump into Robinhood, but also Coinbase as well. And you know Kathy certainly doesn't hesitate pulling the trigger on some of these IPOs. So this will be fun to you know see how the performance goes moving forward. But Tom. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent stuff as always this week. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. This podcast is sponsored by Global X ETFs. The energy landscape is changing before people's eyes and innovative companies are bringing green technologies like solar panels, smart appliances, and electric vehicles to our homes and driveways. 
The prospect of a federal infrastructure deal this year could offer significant room for these technologies to grow. Ready to invest in the transition to green energy? Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn how. My next guest is Bruce Bond, co-founder and CEO of Innovator ETFs, who, of course, pioneered the defined outcome ETF category. And listen to this. Next week will mark the three-year anniversary of the launch of the Innovator S&P 500 buffer ETFs, which were the first defined outcome ETFs. And if you look at the entire Innovator defined outcome ETF lineup, it's already about $5 billion in assets. Just a remarkable success story. And I, I should note, this is not Bruce's first rodeo. He was actually co-founder of PowerShares back in 2003. Of course, that's under Invesco now, fourth largest ETF issuer, a pioneer in smart beta ETFs. And uh, Bruce is now on the line with me from Chicago. Bruce, great having you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. I'm happy to be here. You know, it's funny. I went back and looked. You joined me on this podcast actually a few months after the launch of your first Defined Outcome ETFs. And you were obviously very excited about your prospects here. You had a lot of enthusiasm. But but I have to ask you, are you surprised by the success you've had? I mean, did you ever envision getting this big this fast? Because as you know, it can be really tough for new ETF issuers. Yeah, I mean, uh, we had a lot of fear and trepidation coming into it. You know, I think it took a lot for me to come back into the industry. And, you know, I didn't really want to come back for anything. Uh, I didn't want to come back and just kind of shoot for the edges, you know, the more uh, kind of esoteric type of thematic products or something like that. You know, I, if I came back, I wanted to come back with something like that could be meat and potatoes for people, you know, something at the core of what they do something that had, you know, some risk benefit to it. And so, I mean, to your question, um, we, we didn't know. We didn't know. You know, it had never been done before. I mean, it was kind of similar to when we did power shares, and we didn't know would people want smart beta, would they not, you know, this kind of thing back when, you know, benchmarks were all the rage. And uh, so it's, you know, but it, but it helps a small issuer have something, you know, specific so that they can cut their own lane, and even if you don't attract all the assets, you know, that you think you could, a portion of them is all it takes. And so we had hoped we could be this big, uh, but we definitely didn't know, you know, where we would end up. So we're, we're, de we're very happy with where we are and, uh, you know, are pleased to be back in the industry and contributing, you know, to, uh, you know, advisors and their ability to build better portfolios for their clients. Okay, so I know many of our listeners are probably familiar with the defined outcome ETFs, but I always love covering the basics. So I thought we'd start by having you explain how these work. And we don't need to get into all of the mechanics, but let's maybe take the uh, S&P 500 buffer ETFs that just reset on August 1st. I think that's a good example. So there's three of them. There's the S&P 500 buffer ETF, ticker BAUG, a power buffer ETF, PAUG, and an ultra buffer ETF ticker UAUG. 
Just explain for us what's going on under the hood in these three ETFs. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And to your point, Nate, you're on those tickers, just so everybody listening understands this. I mean, it might take a little bit to understand exactly what's going on here, but even the tickers are designed to make it simple for you. And the idea is for BAUG, that's the buffer for August, and P is the power buffer for August, and so and the U is the ultra buffer for August. And so you look all the months across the year, each one, it has August, September, October, November. And that way, all you have to do is look at the ticker, and you know when your product will reset and when your new outcome period will be established. And we want to make it so people just look at their screen or they look at their uh, portfolio for their client and know, it, know what they've got and know how to address the products. But in order to do that, one thing, one thing I want everyone to understand here is that these products are really – very simple. You have to understand some basics that maybe you haven't been exposed to before, but the premise and the goal of what these are trying to provide is really a very simple thing. And the idea is that you have a one-year outcome period. That means you have a one-year period. You buy at the beginning, and then the, the options basically within the portfolio reset in one year. They expire in one year, and then it goes into another outcome period. And it does it automatically. You don't have to do anything at the end of the period. It just continues to go. And then secondly, you can get a 9% buffer. Now, what is a buffer? A buffer is the first 9% of losses for the year over that one-year outcome period. If the market is down 9%, you don't lose anything. If it's down 10%, you would lose 1%. It's very simple. And then the power buffer is a 15% buffer. So you're buffered for the first 15% of the downside. And, and again, specifically, this is in the S&P 500. We have different exposures, but these are in the S&P 500. And then UOG, which is the ultra buffer, the biggest buffer we offer, what it does, it doesn't start at zero. It starts at negative five, and it runs all the way down to negative 35. And so the market could be down 35% next year, and you're going to lose 5% because that first five, you're exposed to that. And that, you know, the ultra is for people that are like, look, I can stand to lose 5%, but I don't want to lose any more than that. You know, I'm trying to build my assets, and I have the future. Now, with each of these, you also have a performance cap. So you have this buffer on the downside, and then you have a performance cap on the upside. On the 9% buffer, your starting cap was 13% for the, for the August uh, series. For the power buffer, it was 8%. And then for the ultra buffer, it was 6.1%. So in the, in the buffer, you get 13% of the upside in the S&P 500. So let's say you want to be in the S&P 500, you can get 30, 13% of the upside and you have a 9% buffer against potential losses. And a lot of people, especially if you're uh, a baby boomer and you're toward the end of your and getting close to retiring or in retirement, you're like, look, I still want that 13% upside, but I do not want to take as much exposure on the downside. I can't afford to do that. I don't, you know, my, my uh, timeline isn't long enough for that. Therefore, you can buy this and have this buffer on the downside, but get a portion of the upside. And that's really what people are looking for these days. So simply, that's what it is. You know, you, you give up a little upside in order to get a buffer on the downside. And, uh, you know, the more 
uh, buffer you have on the downside, the lower your cap because it's more costly to finance, in a sense, the cost of that buffer. And Bruce, again, we're not going to get into all of the mechanics here, but these ETFs, in terms of the underlying holdings, they own flex options or flexible exchange options. Can you just talk a little bit about those and, and how they're positioned within the ETFs? Yes. I mean, so the, the way to, to think about a flex option is these are, think of it like you can make a custom option when you go to the exchange. And the reason we do that is we want the option to start on a precise day and we want it to end on a precise day and we want a specific uh, value for that option. And what a flex option allows us to do is to customize that. If you just go out into the listed option market, you have to choose what's out there and available. This allows us to customize the exposure that we're getting. And and um, really there's between four and seven different options within there. And they all end on the same day and they all start on the same day. And it's really, it, it's it's all done. I think the important thing for people to know that are listening to this, you might say to yourself, if you're familiar with options, well, I could kind of do this on my own, couldn't I? Or, well, I mean, uh, most people can't do it on their own, frankly, because it's too sophisticated to do on your own and to come up with the exact balance of the portfolio that you need. But at the same time, this is being done at the at an institutional level. So it would be very expensive to try to do on your own. And so we think that this is by far the lowest cost way for people to participate in this. And it also gives you just one number to look at. You're able to watch those options over the year. You can see where the share trades throughout the year. Now, one other important thing I want to um, remind people of, Nate, is that Remember, this is a basket. It's a portfolio of options. And so when we say you're going to get, uh, you know, 13% of the upside, if the S&P, let's say in the first week, goes up 5%, you won't be up 5%. And the reason you're not up 5% is because those options, they have a lot of time value still in the option. So the option doesn't, it moves much slower it, it, it has a rhythm with where the market's going, but it doesn't move nearly as much of the market. So what it does, it tends out, takes out a lot of volatility uh, out of your portfolio, owning this relative to the S&P 500 or Spider or some you know, IVB or something like that. It's an excellent point. I always say I think it's just critically important to understand that these ETFs are what I call point-to-point investments, right? You're only going to get the outcomes on the label if you buy on day one and hold throughout the entire outcome period. Now, you can certainly buy intra-period, but then you have to understand how much remaining caps left or buffer. And I guess on that note, Bruce, uh, I know you have a, a pretty robust web tool on the website that provides information for each of the ETFs remaining caps, buffers, et cetera. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that would be great. And and um, so anybody, I mean, you can participate. These are ETFs. And so one of the beauty of these products relative to maybe doing another, like an annuity or a structured product or these types of things, they're completely liquid. And you can buy them and sell them at any time. You always know your value. So you're making a decision of, do I want to buy it today or do I not? Or do I want to sell it today or do I not? It's not a, you know, an obscure uh, product where you don't really know what your value is. The value is good, and they do actually tend to trade a little bit uh, in, within the outcome, in, in the middle of the outcome period. And so the markets have been good on these. Uh, I would I would always encourage people when buying ETFs that maybe aren't as liquid as the Qs or 
uh, spy or something like that, use a limit order, you know, so you have a good feeling about where you want your fill to be. Um, but, I, but I think that uh, a lot, if you go to the website, let's say that you want to buy the January series and or you want to even just evaluate which one do you want to own because we do have a lot of advisors that participate in the middle uh, of an outcome period or they may sell early and those types of things. And we have tools on the website that help you know where you stand relative uh, to the market within your outcome period. So if you did buy January and you were like, well, where am I at uh, relative to my cap? Am, am I at the cap or just under the cap? Or, you know, I'm, do I have a lot of cap left? You know, um, you can go and look at that. And it will tell you based on uh, today or any at every moment, it's updated every 15 minutes, where your value is. And, and or 15 seconds, sorry. It tells you where your value is relative to uh, the marketplace. And so you can say, well, I'm getting close to my cap. I'm going to sell this and go into a new fund or new ETF, the current issue, something like that. We see that. Uh, and, and people just roll from one to another. And so um, if you think about why, why are these tools so valuable, it's because if you bought in January, and you were up and you're closer to your cap and you're looking at the market and you're like, you know, I think the market could come down from here. It's getting really overvalued uh, relative to what I'm comfortable with. You could say in August, I'm going to I'm going to sell my January and I'm going to roll down into August. I'm going to lock in the buffer that I've got or whatever the gain is, lock in a portion of that 9 percent or 15 percent. And then I'm going to get a new cap. And I'm going to get a new outcome period. And that allows you to step up uh, within the buffer ETFs and continue to uh, help to lock in some of that gain that you've achieved while being in the product. And we see quite a bit of that occurring uh, across the year as the market moves up. Bruce, in terms of that new cap, can you just explain what happens at the end of each outcome period? So if I buy at whatever point during the the outcome period and then hold all the way through the end on the last day of the outcome period, what happens and, and how is that new cap determined? Because I know the, the downside buffers, they always stay the same. Right, exactly. So l let's say that somebody's like, okay, you know, 9% buffer is good enough for me. I just want to have a little cushion against the market if the market turns down. And uh, so you bought the 9%. So if you buy that particular product, BOG, um, you get the buffer for August. Well, then what that tells you is the 1st of August next year or the last day of July, right in there, what happens is those options will expire. And so the full value of those options will be realized on the last day of July next year. And that cash, in a sense, comes into the portfolio. And then a new set of options a one-year outcome period of options is established. Now, what doesn't change, your buffer stays at 9%. You maintain a one-year outcome period. And so those things don't change at all. So you can, when you buy the 9% or 15% or 30% buffer, you have that for the life of the fund every year as it resets in whatever month you bought. And you also have a one-year outcome period if that's the one you bought. The thing that will change is the cap. And the cap, as you put, Nate, it, it, it is set by where the market is at that time. 
the interesting thing about these buffer ETFs is that the more volatility in the market, the caps will be higher. And so you get more potential to get more of the upside in a volatile market than you do in like a slow trending market where there's not a lot of volatility. And um, it's, it's not directly related to things like the VIX, but a VIX, VIX can be a little bit of a foreteller of where your cap could be. But they also have dividend yield and things like that all play a part in where the cap will be. But the best thing to know is if the market's volatile, your cap will be higher. And if it's not volatile and it's super stable, your cap will tend to be a little bit lower because there's not a lot of risk in the market. And therefore, you know, the options market don't pay, won't pay as much. The, the other thing um, for people to just be aware of, and I think, you know, let's say that, that you bought the August series and we get to next uh, August 1st, the, the, the options within the portfolio expire, they roll you into a new series. And you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, my cap is at 10%. And that's not good enough for you or 9%. You're just not comfortable with that. You can just sell it. You know, the, the ETFs don't move around a lot. You can say, yeah, where I'm at right now, that's good enough for me. I've made some good money. I had my buffer on. I understand how it works. And, but I'm going to go, or, or sometimes what we see happening too is uh, the market sells off and the buffer really protects people. And people are like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go risk on. I'm going to really add some risk back into my portfolio. So I don't want to cap. I don't want to have the risk of being capped. I think a lot of the risk is taken out of the market by this adjustment you know, and, and therefore I'm going to roll and go risk on. We see that too, is people, they roll risk on when they think there's a lot of upside opportunity. And then when they think things are getting, you know, a little toppy, they roll back into the buffers and we see a lot of assets flow in as people are like, okay, I'm going to add a little buffer on because I think, you know, the market has downside risk here. Bruce, just a, a couple of minutes left. As I look at your product lineup overall, it's remarkable. I mean, you've really expanded the offerings here. Uh, there, there are buffer strategies covering the S&P 500, NASDAQ 100, Russell 2000, MSCI EFA, MSCI Emerging Markets. Uh, you now have a 20-plus year treasury bond buffer uh, ETF lineup. There are what are called U.S. Equity Accelerated or Accelerated Plus ETFs. There are uh, double and, and triple stacker ETFs, a defined wealth shield uh, ETF. And obviously, we don't have time to go through all of these. I, I guess, can you just talk about the lineup overall and, and maybe even in the context of the current market environment where I would say, at least here in the U.S., there are concerns over stock valuations. Uh, everybody knows bonds are, are, are still hardly yielding anything. Just talk about the lineup overall and, and, and you know, how this may help in terms of portfolio management. Yes, uh, happy to do that, Nate. I, I think that um, what we're attempting to do is to bring a full product suite across the board that people would feel comfortable uh, participating in buffers, whether it's an international product, an emerging markets product, or within the QQQ, so that they can get uh, a big piece of the upside in that market, but have a buffer on the downside. I heard you and Tom just talking about, you know, some of the China risks that are out there. You know, if you're concerned about those kind of things, you know, a buffer may be the right fit for you. A lot of people have done emerging markets and really got stung by, by China. You know, they're such a big piece of that. Why not have a buffer on and not really have to worry about it? It allows you to put your feet up. So that's kind of what that, the buffer piece is about. 
And and then we have some fixed income things, as you mentioned. A lot of people are very concerned about bonds. I mean, really, why own bonds today? What do bonds do for you relative to the risk that you're taking on for these bonds? I mean, you, you get one and one and a half, two percent, but you have a lot of duration risk. And and I think people are trying to figure out what do I do? A lot of people have come over to buffers. They've they've sold out of a portion of their fixed income assets. They've moved some of that money into the buffers. And so what they're saying is, instead of having my save for my conservative money, my low risk money in bonds, I'm going to move that to equities, but with a big buffer, knowing that you know they still want that conservative approach with a portion of their assets, but at the same time, they're they're hooking their performance in that portion of portfolio into the equity market uh, rather than have it hooked onto the fixed income market, which could really disappoint, you know, over the next 10 years or so. So I think that's kind of uh, we're seeing that. And then I would really encourage people to look at the accelerated products and the accelerated products. What they do is they can give you two or three times the upside of the market with one to one on the downside of the market. So, some of them have buffers and some don't. Some just give you two times up, three times up, but one-to-one -one on the downside. These are very different than any of the leveraged ETFs you've looked at or heard about in the past where you have all this, you know, you, you know where you have um, erosion because of the compounding effect and these kind of things. These are over a year or over a quarter, and they can give you double or triple to a cap, but only one-to-one -one on the downside, so you don't have this significant risk on the downside, but you have the potential for enhanced or accelerated performance on the upside. Well, Bruce, congratulations on all the success. I absolutely love seeing it. A true ETF success story. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having us, Nate. Really appreciate it. That was Bruce Bond, co-founder and CEO of Innovator ETFs. I am now joined by the ETF maestro, the one and only Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Quite simply, one of the best in the business covering ETFs. Plus, you always get bonus music takes if you follow Eric on Twitter, which I always enjoy. And Eric is now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you, Nate. Well, how have you been? How's everything uh, going? Good summer so far? Yeah, um, gone to the beach a little bit. Uh, you know, my son's in camp. Uh, it's been nice, you know, partially back in the office, partially at home still. Uh, so just trying to get the, the, you know, myself back into a rhythm and lose about 15 pounds. I, uh, <laughs> I acted on during the pandemic and uh, uh, I, I, I got to get I got to start moving around more. All right. So, look, I have a bunch of Twitter questions for us to get to. I just thought that'd be a fun format. Maybe get us out of our box a little, uh, get us into some topics that we might not otherwise cover. And uh, I mentioned music at the top. I'm going to hit you with a tough Twitter question just right out of the gate. It's from at Emmy underscore 91M. You got to love these Twitter handles. Right out of the gate, give us your favorite band of all time. This is just a monster question to begin with. 
Oh, easily. Uh, Radiohead. That's my that's my Beatles. No brainer. Uh, you know, I love the Beatles. So you just yeah, go with Radiohead them right off. You Beatles. don't even have to think about it. Oh, don't even think about it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's obje- that's a very subjective question. But for me, it's Radiohead. Their their whole catalog is like a giant planet, and there's all these different sounds and songs. I mean, you can really explore it for a long time, and they really every album's different. There's so much going on in their catalog, and uh, they always keep it interesting. They're never dull. All right. Since you answered that so quick, I'm going to have to give you another uh, music question. I think everyone knows I love uh, 90s alternative and, and grunge. Give me your favorite alternative song from the 1990s. You get one pick here. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's tough not to pick Nirvana. They still hold up, and they're probably my favorite band from that era. But you know what song I always tell people? If you want to know what it felt like to be in the 90s, I tell them to listen to Soundgarden's Fell on Black Days. Good one. Um, that, that sound is what it felt like in the 90s, in my opinion. And that great, great song, too. This may surprise some people. I'll go with a Zombie by the Cranberries. I, definitely not the best band. I just, I thought best song. Look, there's a lot to choose from, right? You mentioned Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins. Actually, we probably sound like boomers here, right? There, there's so much to go with. Uh, it'd be hard to, to whittle down the list. I like that. Uh, obviously, uh, today, Smashing Pumpkins. There's, again, there's just so much to choose from. Yeah, no, Zombies, the Cranberries were a sound they they were always around uh and zombie is a is a great song um with the bombs and the guns yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so look before we get to the uh the other twitter questions i do want to start with one uh, in the box topic i'm guessing most people want to hear from us on and that of course is bitcoin etfs and actually uh, we did get a twitter question on this it came from at jamie hudson john one who is with valkyrie uh, which, of course, they have a live Bitcoin ETF filing out there. But the big news last week was ProFunds launching this uh, futures-based mutual fund. And, I, look, I, I've lost count. I think we have something like, what, 13 or 14 Bitcoin ETF filings in the hopper with the SEC. But you have developed this theory. You call it the higher power theory on why there's not a Bitcoin ETF yet. Do you want to explain this and maybe talk about what you expect to see happen here moving forward? Yeah. So when I was, first of all, there's 15 file now. It's five short of a Kentucky Derby. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll reach 20 before too long. My, I was always thinking the SEC was really just focused on like what's best for the retail investor. And so while handicapping that mindset, I thought, well, They'll probably be six to eight months after Canada. Canada usually is out first. Um, the, they can see that those ETFs work well. The Canadian Bitcoin ETFs are really great in terms of tracking. There's very little premium and discount. They do exactly what they should, even though the ones in Europe told us the same information. Um, Canada is a little closer to us physically and, and maybe spiritually. So I think that is um, something that I thought would just be enough. Um, and then we had Gensler coming in, and he knows crypto very well. I just I thought it would come sooner. Then, what I what I, I just wasn't thinking about other pressures internally Gensler might be facing, and I wasn't thinking about the government looking to protect itself. Um, and I think I've m- mutate m- I've evolved into this higher power theory, which is that if you look at some of the quotes from the real higher ups in the government, I'm talking like Janet Yellen. Um, she calls crypto extremely inefficient way of conducting trans- tr- transactions. I fear it's often for illicit finance. 
Um, Warren thinks it's, it can scam investors, assist criminals, environmentally wasteful. And Powell, the Federal Reserve chair, has said that cryptocurrencies are vehicles for speculation and may also carry potential risks to those users and the broader financial system, not to mention the threat to the U.S. dollar. I just think they, they got the higher people higher than the SEC think the crypto is, is potentially a menace to society, literally. And until there's some regulatory framework, I just don't see a Bitcoin ETF coming out. So until the higher ups are appeased um, by what we don't know, um, ETFs probably just going to have to live on the back burner, even though we all know, and I think the SEC knows, that an ETF could be the regulator's best weapon to help uh, make it more transparent and less fraud. Use the U.S. market makers um, to your advantage because they're not going to mess with an exchange. They're not going to use an exchange that is shady or not above board. So by using competition and capitalism and introducing the ETF, I think that's the way to achieve your goals if you're the SEC. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say your higher power theory is correct, and this is much more of a a political issue, right, to what you were saying, concerns over uh, Bitcoin being a threat to the dollar, the IRS with tax evasion. You mentioned illicit uses and Bitcoin being used in ransoms. I think you could probably even toss in the environmental impact of crypto mining. Some people would say that's a huge concern. But ultimately, to your point, this comes down to regulation. And I saw an interview this morning. It was a fantastic uh, Bloomberg interview with SEC Chair Gary Gensler, he the, the point was made in that in that uh, interview in that piece he has 49 non-crypto policy issues on his desk including some pretty big ones uh, the stuff we saw with Archegos and uh, in GameStop and so forth so what i'm getting at is if a regulatory framework needs to be, be developed to get the higher powers comfortable i mean what are we looking at in terms of timing are you still thinking it's possible to have a bitcoin etf approved in the first half of 2022 or are we looking much longer uh, you know, at this point, I'm expecting to receive the news in an old age home. Um, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to do some cartwheels. Uh, I'm going to leave my walker for a minute and do a cartwheel, um, have the nurse come over and resuscitate me and then go back to my walker. Um, yeah, no, listen, Reggie Brown, who I find somebody who's very tapped in, he works with regulators. He was, he said about four months ago, Q1 2022, but he's since moved back to Q2. Um, so I'm really just going to attach my my prediction to Reggie um, because my predictions haven't worked. Uh, and I'll admit that. <laughs> I think I also just, again, I was looking at what's best for the investor. And as GBTC got more and more assets, I just thought to myself, and also MicroStrategy, the stock that's now got Bitcoin in the balance sheet and people are using as a proxy for Bitcoin. I thought, you know, now there's all these other not so good ways. So now there's actually a cost to not approving. And I thought that would weigh heavier on the SEC. Um, and, and it clearly hasn't. So my calculations were a little off and I readjusted them. And I think Reggie's probably onto something. One of the Twitter questions we got actually pertained to the ProShares mutual fund I mentioned. Uh, the question came from at Lyle Pratt. And he was asking about how that mutual fund impacts GBTC, which you just mentioned, and uh, their chances to convert to an ETF. He was asking whether it helps or hinders, hinder implying negative pressure on their premium. I mean, you can answer that if you want. But does this ProShares mutual fund rolling out, does that change anything here? What, what, what do you make of that? No. Um, th- this is a, these mutual funds that hold futures are going to be total flops. Um, nobody wants it. 
Um, it's funny, Gensler is allowing this to go out because it's under the 40 Act, and a mutual fund uh, can halt, it can uh, close up. So if they got too popular, the, the theory goes, they could just stop taking in new cash, and therefore there'd be no problem in the underlying market. Um, the, like this is, I guess, in uh, you know response to something like USO, which had so much cash coming in that it became a big part of the oil futures market, and it was a mess. So I get the whole theory and wanting to be part of the 40 Act, which uh, these mutual funds are. The problem is there's going to be no investors in them to protect. Um, it, people just don't want it served like this. I, I, I don't know what the, you know, the dog has to want the food. I said the same thing in active non-transparent ETFs. You could invent all these different structures, but the dog has to want to eat the food in the bowl. And nobody wants futures, and they don't want it served up in a mutual fund. It's just the way it is. They want a physically backed ETF like GLD, and that's what they're waiting for. So I don't think this will affect GBTC much at all. I don't think it will affect much anything at all. I think it will just live in oblivion. I know that's harsh, but just I think it's the truth. Okay, let me ask you this, and then we'll move on. Let's say the SEC at some point does finally come around on a Bitcoin ETF approval, and every issuer that has a filing – Let's just say they all have a fair shot at competing, just in terms of, of the timing of launch, right? They all launch right around the same time. Who do you like here? I, I mean, we have some huge names, right? You have Wisdom Tree, Van Eck, yeah. Fidelity, yeah. Art, First Trust, Global X, Grayscale, who, who you mentioned. We know they're going to be in this. Bitwise, you know, Matt Hogan and his team have been working on this forever. This is going to be brutally competitive. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I know. Um this is tough to handicap if you're taking all other variables away. If, if you do that, I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh, a wisdom tree, uh, a first trust. Uh, first trust is the quiet baller. They just yeah. get the money. Distribution machine. They're just a machine. Yeah. Um, ARC, I think ARC and the 21 shares brand is very strong in, with the younger people who would buy this. Um, Global X also, you cannot count them out. Do not sleep on Global X. They, they can have a product come out that just sounds like, oh, really? And, and bam, it's got a billion dollars. So um, it's just tough. It's really tough to handicap. And Van Eck, of course, um, I think they have a good shot. They have been really good in the uh, gold mining space and other areas that are similar. They do niche very well. Fidelity is one I would actually think I would underrate that. I think everybody's like, oh, Fidelity, um, they're now custodying and all this stuff. But I they have a bad track record in the ETF world. Uh, they have not had a lot of success, and I don't know if people really know them for that. So I, don't, I would put them on the second tier, maybe like a, a Valkyrie mm-hmm. also in the second tier, even though they'll probably have a niche audience. They're just so small. Um, but what, what, I'm, what I think will happen is a State Street and possibly even a BlackRock will file for a Bitcoin ETF. Um, and, and that could do really well, um, especially because people know IAU and GLD. This is, in fact, I don't even know why they don't file because what's the difference? I mean, um, a Bitcoin ETF would be just like their GLD or IAU products, uh, just holding crypto. Um, so we'll see. They could be one of those uh, people to come in and make it a clean Kentucky Derby with 20 entrants. But <laughs> no. it, is, it is a real fascinating situation and when they do start approving oh man we're gonna have some fun pools i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to win more bets against todd rosenblues yeah you've already won like what three straight against them or something like that (laughs) i feel bad for todd (laughs) every time on twitter that we have a sort of disagreement and we don't bet he wins he has a good record he just has a bad record when we actually put like a steak dinner on it 
I'll just add to everything you said. First of all, I agree. I do think BlackRock's going to come in at some point. State Street, we'll see. But you're right. What's the downside to doing so um, in, in filing? But to me, the interesting wild card to watch here will be Grayscale, because if they convert, I haven't checked assets here recently. I think they have something like $20 billion still in GBTC. So automatically they become you, you know the, the, the big kid on the block. And it could be a situation like GLD is in, on the physical gold side versus the other physical gold ETFs. And then what's going to be interesting to watch from there is this dynamic of whether or not investors want to uh, invest with a legacy ETF issuer or somebody who's more branded around the crypto space for their Bitcoin ETF exposure. I just think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, And the Bitcoin people who are from that world, uh, that worked in Canada. I, I, I hope I get this right. The Galaxy uh, Ethereum ETF did very well, um, even though there were three launches in the same day, I believe. The Galaxy one, I think, got the most, and that's a that's a name that is more tied into the Bitcoin community, whereas I think the other two were more ETF issuers predominantly. So you're right. I, I think if somebody has real clout in the Bitcoin space, that could be an advantage here. Okay, so let's get to these other Twitter questions, and we can go quick here. We'll just go rapid fire. And by the way, I really appreciate everyone who, who sent these in. These were fantastic questions, though we're probably not going to be able to get to all of them. Um, but, but Eric, let's start with this one from at AntBase10, who wants to know, do you anticipate more mutual fund to ETF conversions on a larger scale, or will it remain relatively niche? And I'll just add, of course, DFA recently converted like what thirty billion dollars in mutual funds to, to ETFs. Do you expect to see more of this? I, I do. Uh, I think it's going to be large scale, but yet niche. Um, we predict that a trillion dollars will come over in the next ten years, but that still would be less than ten percent of all mutual fund assets. So that's how big. That's how much money is floating around there. Um, so yeah, I, I think in targeted cases, it makes a lot of sense. I think the big thing that people are underweighting in the conversion, the naysayers, I think I'm probably the most bullish on conversions of my colleagues um, in the industry, is what we're, what we're calling dignity. <laughs> uh, you saw these ants launched and like nobody cares. It's embarrassing. Um, and, I, you know, it just shows that so much of the money in active mutual funds is just either trapped there or, from, you know, there from the old days or was put there because a the broker paid off. When they're put into the meritocracy or the terror dome known as the ETF industry, where you have to have people want the, again, the dog has to want the food. Nobody wants it. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure what they can do. You know, they could get more active like ARC potentially, but that's not really their DNA. And they could get more cheap like Vanguard, but then that would, that would like uh, really upset their current mutual fund investors. So I really empathize with their situation. I just think what they could do is just, if they convert the mutual fund over, to an ETF, they come over with assets, which gets them, you know, potentially on platforms easier. They come over with dignity. They come over with a track record. All these things really send them into the Terradome, you know, with like a whole suit of armor and a bunch of weapons. Right now, going in as an ant is like a little baby trying to make it in the Amazon jungle. <laughs> um, it's just it's just really hard, and I think that is what I'm overweighting is that they'll figure out ways to work um, to get the mutual fund converted if there is 401k exposure in the fund, which is what some people say is the hang up. I just think where there's a will, there's a way. And there's a lot of lawyers who can make a lot of money helping them. And City, for example, which helped in the DFA, has said, yeah, we're we're ready to do this on a big scale. So 
um, that that's my take on it. Couldn't agree more. I I, I think the biggest roadblock for uh, larger scale conversions is 401k plans. And once that gets figured out, then you'll see just a, a whole slew of, of mutual fund ETF conversions. But right now, mutual fund companies are sitting pretty with the 401k plans, right? I think you've called it the Alamo. Uh, they're still milking fees in, in those plans. And, and there's not a lot of wide scale adoption of ETFs and 401k plans. So to me, yeah. that's well, it's interesting. In the 401k market, um, or in, in those plans, that's where index funds do very well and CITs, which is like we call it the dark matter of the funds world because it's hard to get data, but it's floating around there, you know, and I think that's underrated. But people think 401k, they think active mutual fund, but no, it's now majority passive. That's where Vanguard does very well. Target date funds do well. So this whole, you know, Vanguard effect is totally playing out there. And that's sort of why I think ETFs probably won't they don't need to be in the 401k plans uh, i think what you need out of an etf uh in a 401k plan uh you, you don't need the liquidity that you you get this cheapness from a 401k plan um and as long as you have a passive option i think it's fine and a lot of companies move to cits which have negotiable fees but cits are largely passive and those are cheap so um it's the etf isn't the only thing partaking in this sort of great cost migration all right. Next question I have, and this question got a lot of responses. It comes from at Dividend Growth. They said, uh, I am surprised that no one has thought of splitting the S&P 500 ETF into an ETF that pays dividends and one that doesn't. So the idea here is to have one ETF that includes dividend paying companies like Coca-Cola or Johnson & Johnson, and then the other that includes non-dividend paying companies like Google and Facebook. What do you think about that? Good, good idea for an ETF issuer? Um, I believe they have this, uh, Mataris. Whoever asked that should check out Mataris. They have um, an ETF where they stripped out the dividends and then one that's just the price. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you have a need, if, like when the pandemic hit and dividends dropped, and there's ways to sort of uh, tactically trade around this, I think, if you're interested. Um, but I'm looking at Mataris. They have 27 million, charged 81 basis points. Um, and obviously the, the dividend of the S&P is not that high. So um, it's not a, a huge, I don't see a huge demand for it. But um, whoever asked that, I would, uh, I think the ticker is IDIV. Yeah, I'll just add, I think that could help with, <clears throat> excuse me, tax management, right? Asset location and that you could put the dividend paying portion in an IRA and perhaps a non-dividend payers in a taxable account. So I, I could see that getting some traction. But yeah, good point. yeah, it's just how how surgical do you want to get in that exposure? Okay, on the topic of new ETFs, good question from at Quant of Asia, Tariq Dennison, who I've actually had on the podcast before. And, and by the way, he tweeted us like five questions, which I thought were all great. But I really like this one. He asked, if you had to start a good brand new ETF right now, what would it be? So any good ideas for all the ETF issuers listening? Yeah, I mean, I have a billion-dollar ETF that that's just waiting for someone to do it. You know what I'm going to say? Um, is this, is this the X Mondays? No, oh, the no, ESG no. Re yeah, the, the ESG yeah. reject, 100. percent Yeah, S and P X Mondays, I think, could find a niche audience, but I think a ESG reject has a lot of potential. First of all, we looked at ESG rejects is not the same as Synstock. Berkshire Hathaway is an ESG reject. Netflix is an ESG reject. Amazon is, uh, in some cases, an ESG reject. There are some good companies in there. Um, and if you go and back test it 
and you equal weight a basket of the 20 lowest rated of the S&P 100, they do very well. But they won't obviously outperform all the time. But my, I think there's a built up, um, I don't know what the word is, like burnt out, like people are burned out of being lectured to about ESG that I think you might even get like hate flows. Uh, people, people who are just like, you know what, let me, let me show the ESG people that I'm actually want to bet against them. Um, so I think you have that built in. It's sort of like the anti-ARC ETF in a way where there's just this um, backlash that you can tap into. Further, I do think there's some performance opportunities there because if all this money goes into ESG, there could be a case that the ones that don't get the money are actually better deals because of this sort of unnatural flow to ESG because of people wanting to look good or appease their institutional investors or whatnot. So there's a bunch of reasons why this could work and would get media attention. Um, So that would be the one that I would launch today if I, if I, you know, wanted, if my goal was to get assets and have a hit product, I'm not sure I would want to create a whole organization around it, but there's a couple issuers out there who I'm surprised haven't rolled the dice on something like this. I guess there's a chance you look like the bad guy, but I just think you're just giving the market options. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the bottom line is there is this sentiment out there because I, I think you're right. People are tired of being lectured to, or at least there's a, a portion of people tired of being lectured to on ESG. And an ETF issuer could tap into that. Plus, I think you could make the case that there's there's some investment rationale to back that up, that if you have stocks that are excluded, sin stocks or, or what have you, there's plenty of academic research out there that shows perhaps there's a premium uh, on returns moving forward. So a separate conversation. But I think you can not only tap into the sentiment, but also have a good academic underpinning behind that ETF as well. Um, okay. Next question comes from at Thanos Timestone, and you mentioned the anti-ARC ETF. His question is, is the ARC Innovation ETF ever going to go back up? Kathy Wood just keeps buying stocks, but no returns. And I, I like this question because I've seen you tweet a lot about the, uh, the, the since all-time high shaming, right, where people focus on recent negative returns, even if an investment has knocked the cover off the ball over the longer term. But uh, look, Ark and Kathy Wood, they were the story of the year last year. Things were going really well. This year, performance hasn't been great. Uh, ARKK, it trails the S&P 500 by like 20 points. Same with ARKW. ARKG trails by like 30 points. And you look at flows. Now, Ark overall is still taking in something like $15 billion this year, uh, though $2 billion in outflows over the past three months or so. But what do you think about the Ark story overall right now? Yeah, so it's a high growth strategy. I mean, her for somebody who put on Twitter, and this is very, it's a fair point. Her uh, ETF, ARK, ARKK, the main one, uh, correlates with the Goldman Sachs non-profitable tech basket. I saw that. And so this is classic growth investing. It's high, high growth investing. But a couple things. First of all, it won't always do well. I mean, we know this. Uh, but look at the companies in it. Tesla, Teladoc, Roku, Zoom, Square, Coinbase. Shopify, um, Spotify. I mean, th- these are big companies in our life. These are not like some, you know, stocks that are going to blow up or are total frauds. Although some would argue on Tesla, I'm sure. But these are it, this is a this is a pretty solid portfolio. And so the whole idea of, of blowing up or fraud, I think you got to take that out of the table. It's just she's long only some of these growth stocks. So you know that's what you're buying. Now I do think that there's a bigger market for this based on the way portfolios are changing, that people are underestimating. Because of the rise of Vanguard and index funds, 
people have replaced their sort of T. Rowe and Fidelity closet indexing active mutual funds of the 90s with Vanguard uh, or cheap ETFs. And so they got this real cheap vanilla core. What they want on top of it is, is hot sauce. They want hot sauce on top of their vanilla. And so back in the day, if, you're, uh, if your active fund underperformed, it was a big deal because it was your core. I mean, you, you were crapping your pants, um, so you sold it. And so that's why behavior was so bad. Now, if this is just an outer layer and you let Cassie Wood and she's serving up 98% active share to your S&P, well, by all means, just go do your thing. I'll stomach the drawdowns. My total fee in my portfolio is still very low. I think that is underestimated, and she'll be around for a long time. Could even be like the fidelity of the 21st century um, in that she's perfectly built for the, the state of portfolios today, and that matters. So I think that's why we always say you know, she'll have down drawdowns, but don't expect a run on the fund. We think that people are into it, and because of that, like I said, that barbell portfolio, um, they'll be around for a while. And also, I'd also add the anti-ARC ETF, and I have a column coming out of this uh, tomorrow or the next day, is going to bring a lot of liquidity, more liquidity. Her funds are very liquid now. The ARC ETF uh, group as a whole trades about as much as GLD every day or more than Netflix, right? It's a very liquid, and it's so hard to get liquidity. Assets are, are easy. You can actually work assets. Liquidity has to be grown naturally, and she has a ton of it. She got all of them have options markets now around the ETF, so they're actually turning into proxies for a certain kind of trade. It's almost like she's created a benchmark, and so Kathy Wood will be here for a long time, even if the thing underperforms for uh, a stretch of time. I think I saw somebody on Twitter put out that um, if let's say that short arc ETF does get assets, that perhaps you see. Uh, create to lens, which actually then puts more assets into ARKK. I thought that was an interesting take. Yeah. Uh, also, um, it's a short arc, I think is about 5% a year. And this would charge you, I'm guessing like 1%, maybe 90 basis points. Um, and so, yeah, there's, I think there's going to be a good deal of interest in this anti-arc ETF. Um, and, but that's actually arguably good for Cassie because again, it, it's just going to bring more people into her uh, budging, you know, um, uh, growing uh, liquidity fortress. All right. Sort of on the topic of ARC, a question from at Jay Dilks, uh, who asked what ETF fund managers actually own their ETFs and personal portfolios. Is there a way to search for this? I am biased because I know Kathy Wood owns her own ETFs for, uh, for personal wealth, but I'm curious of others. Uh, as I understand it, there's really no good way to see this, right? I know you can crawl into 13Fs on some of these managers, but is that data out there anywhere? Um, you know, I would check with Morningstar. I, I believe they actually use this as a criteria in the star system. I asked um, uh, Jeffrey Batak that one time. I saw him writing about it. And so I've actually referred people to them, even though they're competitors. <laughs> we, don't, we don't track it, so why not? Um, that said, I know for a fact, like um, Ned Faber, um, when I think of that eating your own cooking, I think of him. He's definitely in his own funds. I know Kathy Wood is. Um, what are their active funds? I, you know, I think a lot of the ETF issuers are into their own stuff. I think if they're putting out like a real niche product, they probably don't have their whole portfolio in it. Um, so I, I would, you know, assume they put a small amount because it's like anybody else. It would be like an, an add-on to a otherwise 60-40 type portfolio. But I think it's pretty common. Um, so... That said, is it everything? Uh, not not really. I mean, obviously, what's in it, how it works, those are more important things, in my opinion. 
All right, just a couple of minutes left here. For the sake of time, I'm going to wrap uh, a bunch of questions into one. We got a boatload of questions on how you actually invest your own money, I guess related to what we were just talking about with fund managers. Uh, so, so let me go through these. Um, at Mystery B-U-Z-U asks, are you a Boglehead? This needs to be answered officially at last. Um, at Ken Natal, FP, he wanted to know what you own in your personal portfolio and does it include any shiny objects? And then the uh, aforementioned at Quantivasia, he wants to know for your core portfolio holdings, do you prefer sticking with a single ETF brand whose investment philosophy you buy into? And if so, which one and why? Or do you mix up who provides your cheap beta? So, so a lot there, but wh- wh- what do you say to all that? Uh, okay, am I a boglehead? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't go on the site and surf it around, but uh, the uh, philosophy of Bogle is strong, and I follow it for the most part. Um, so, yeah. Um, and as you know, I'm writing a book about him, and, and I am even more confident that his way is, is, a, is a very prudent way to invest. Um, now, do I like shiny objects? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, well, I'll go over what my portfolio generally is. Ironically, most of it's in um, mutual funds, um, but they're in index mutual funds that are in my 401k. As you know, ETFs are not in there, but same deal. Like I said earlier, an index mutual fund and ETF are the, really the same thing if you're going long term. So I have, I think it's some State Street index fund in my 401k. I have, an, my wife has an IRA that is at, uh, with Schwab. So we have, I think, four of those sort of cheap vanilla Schwab ETFs, probably U.S. bond you know, EM, International Developed. I think total fee is like four bips or something. It's great. Um, and we have 529 Target Date Fund. Again, very boring and cheap. But my main goal is cheap and patience. Um, I think I owned lithium back in the day, the lithium ETF, but I stopped. And I also owned UNG just to, just to see what that was like. And that really taught me about Contango. This is when I first started covering ETFs. But I stopped buying shiny object ETFs or anything like that when I covered them, especially during the TV show and the podcast. I don't want anything in my head that would affect my, um, you know, make me biased. I just don't want it. I- I'm okay missing out on this and that. And I've had to have miss out on a couple of things. Like I was early on uranium and I was like, I should have invested in it, but I have this policy not to buy stuff, even if I'm bullish on it. Um, so I-, I feel good. I feel clean when I write. Um, now that said, my wife is a value investor at heart. So she likes to buy, like, she'll see like GE stock you know, take a dive and she'll be like, Ooh, geez at 50 bucks. So like, she'll buy like a really beat up stock once in a while. And it does, usually works out. She's pretty good at that. Um, so outside of some of those, uh, value stocks, uh, it's pretty boring. So no play money account, like a, a Robinhood account, Coinbase account. I was actually talking about this with, uh, uh ETF trends, Tom Lydon earlier, uh, no, no sort of gambling account. Someday. When I stop <laughs> writing about ETFs, um, I think I'll be a very good speculative investor. I think that account, you know, that sort of hot sauce type account that I keep, I think I'll do pretty well. I've, I've had a few times where I was, I was, you know, I was on to ARC early. I was on to a couple things where I almost pulled the trigger personally, but again, I have that rule of not doing that. And so I, I would enjoy that. I just, again, that's for another day when I stop covering ETFs. I'll probably start actively investing a little more on top of my sort of vanilla retirement fund. Eric, before I let you go, you mentioned, excuse me, kind of being a boglehead and and you mentioned the book that you're working on. I know you've been hard hard at work on this this book about Jack Bogle. 
How's that been going? Uh, do, do you have a release date yet? Just tell us about the book. Yeah, so um, it's called The Bogle Effect, and uh, I interviewed him a couple times before he passed away. I had So I had hours of interviews, and I, I was just kept staring at the dictaphone thinking that I needed to get it out there because um, he's such an influential guy. And as you know, I look at the flows all day, and I'm like, you know, if you think about all the flows, you pull the thread on 90% of the flows, you end up in Bogle's brain back in the 70s setting up Vanguard like a mutual ownership structure. It's not really about the index fund. It's more about that structure. And I really wanted to explore that. Um, and even he said that. He said it destructures everything. The index fund is a, a great vehicle for the structure, but it's secondary. And I really wanted to get at that. And I thought he was a character, too. He's very old school, World War II generation kind of guy. So it, it's going good. I had a really, you know, when you write a book, you have to, it's almost like going and living in a foreign country for a year. You have to really like that foreign country. And I, I think spending a year with Bogle, his words, I'd read all his, you know, the books I hadn't read yet, um, really did me a lot of good. Um, and I'm excited to put it out there. It comes out early next year, probably March, April, something like that. I interviewed about 50 people. Also was happy to get some people. I interviewed you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I was happy to get some people talking about Bogle and allowing to sort of give their take on. It's been a couple of years since his death. I think it's a nice time to sort of pay some tribute, although it's a fair take. It's not all positive. And I also look at some other areas like the advice business, the trading business, behavior. And I look at Vanguard and his effect in those areas. So it's not just an index fund book at all. It's much broader than that and looks at just how much impact this man had. Like, uh, you know, I opened the book saying he was sort of like part Steve Jobs, part Martin Luther um, in terms of his impact on this industry. And so... Um, I'm excited to get it out there. No, I'm excited for the release. I'll definitely be a buyer of the book. Um, Eric, I always appreciate the time. For listeners, if by some chance you are not following Eric on Twitter, change that right now. He's at Eric Balchunas. Eric, thank you for joining me this week. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thank you for having me. That was Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, where you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Herb Blank, an ETF industry pioneer and currently senior consultant at Global Finesse. We're going to look at the future of ETFs. And then Robert Netsley, CEO of Inspire Investing, is going to walk through their faith-based lineup of ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.